Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's best and brightest radio station. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're discussing the work, life and legacy of one of England's most celebrated authors, George Orwell. I use the word England pointedly. Joining me in the studio to discuss this are Fatima Ahmed and Owen Hathley. Fatima Ahmed is the deputy editor of Apollo magazine and has written for many publications including Prospect, The New Humanist and The London Review of Books. She was also a guest on the first ever episode of this programme back in July 2017 and returns for the first time since then. Also returning is Owen Hathley, who's our first guest to complete a hat-trick of appearances. He writes regularly on aesthetics and politics for, amongst others, Architectural Review, Design, The Guardian and Prospect. He's the author of many books, including Landscapes of Communism, published by Penguin in 2015, The Ministry of Nostalgia, published by Verso in 2016, and which is quite germane to today's conversation, The Chaplin Machine, Pluto Press 2016, Trans-Europe Express, Penguin 2018, and The Adventures of Owen Hathaway in the Post-Soviet Space, published by Repeater last year, and which I recently read. And following in George Orwell's footsteps, he's the culture editor of the recently relaunched Tribune magazine, for which Fatima and I have both written. Fatima, Owen, welcome back to Suite 212. For many of our listeners, George Orwell will need little introduction, but to set the context for our show, here's a brief outline of his life. He was born as Eric Arthur Blair in 1903 in India, where his father worked for the civil service. His family moved to England in 1907. Ten years later, he went to Eton, before going to Burma in 1922 to work for the Indian Imperial Police. He then lived in Paris for two years before returning to England, where he published Down and Out in Paris and London in 1933. In 1936, the left book club publisher Victor Gollantz commissioned him to write about poverty and mass unemployment during the Great Depression, and The Road to Wigan Pier came out the following year. At the end of 1936, Orwell went to Spain to fight fascism with the International Brigades, where he was wounded. He documented his experiences in homage to Catalonia in 1938. After spending time in a sanatorium, he lived in Morocco, and during the Cold War, he served in the Home Guard and worked for the BBC Eastern Service from 1941 to 1943. He also became literary editor for Tribune, for whom he regularly contributed political commentary and literary criticism, and also wrote for The Observer. After the war, he published his political allegory Animal Farm, and then, in 1949, his dystopian satirical novel 1984, which brought him worldwide fame after his death from tuberculosis in January 1950, aged 46. We're going to examine Orwell's legacy, looking at how he was turned into a secular saint during the Cold War, and why he retained such an intellectual stranglehold over certain strands of British socialism and liberalism, starting with a discussion of his essay, The Lion and the Unicorn. So Fatima, I want to turn to you first for a, um, just an introduction and summary uh, of the, the Lion and the Unicorn. Um, the Lion and the Unicorn is a very long essay that Orwell published as a book in February 1941. It was part of a series called the Searchlight series, and the purpose of the series um, was to think of ways forward for England both during the war and after it, should there be an after that was um, more positive. Um, 
think it's important to remember that it was written between August and October 1940. So both the period when he was writing it and the period when, he, when it comes out is the sort of worst part of the war for Britain in, man, in many ways. Um, a lot of Western Europe is occupied. The Americans and the Soviet Union don't come into the war until the end of the year. Um, but the line in the unicorn, I think why we're going to talk about it, is when people talk about Englishness, and when they talk about Orwell's views of Englishness, this is what we're always quoting from. And it's incredibly easy to quote out of context, but it's also a really complicated text because it makes a lot of rhetorical moves. Um, but I think if I was going to summarise its argument, well, actually, Orwell does this for us. He says, you know, we cannot win the war without socialism, but we cannot have socialism without a sort of, I'm not quoting him directly here, but we cannot have socialism without a sort of movement from below of English patriotism. And this is what's going to sort of defeat a corrupt capitalist upper class that isn't really worth, isn't really up to the task of fighting fascism. So I think that's why he writes it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about him being quoted out of context and how easy it is for some ways in for certain parts of this essay to be picked up by people who didn't share his um, his political tendencies. Uh, famously, John Major gave a speech to the Conservative Group for Europe on the 22nd of April 1993. Um, alluding to a paragraph uh, in The Lion and the Unicorn where Orwell talks about coming back to England from any foreign country and what you will see. And John Major said, 50 years on from now, Britain will still be the country of long shadows on county grounds, warm beer, invincible green suburbs, dog lovers and pool fillers, and, as George Orwell said, old maids bicycling to Holy Communion through the morning mist. And if we guess our way, Shakespeare will still be read even in school. I mean, Shakespeare was was read in school at that time because we were at school at that time. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, that... I, I think in, in in 37 years in England, I have never seen an old maid cycling to Holy Communion through the mist. <laughs> Do you think you would have seen one in 1941? Plausibly, I'm not sure. Sure about 1993. <laughs> I mean, I would say. I mean, what's wonderful about the major quotation, which is so famous, is that it's a complete misreading of that bit of the essay because this bit of the essay, Orwell is kind of almost satirising kind of elements of Eng Englishness. So as well, we remember the old maids, but we don't mention the lorry queues that he mentions, or um, I think he talks about pinball machines in Soho. Um, but at this point, he's trying to establish kind of characteristics of Englishness, and he does it twice. He does it first in this kind of satirical observer coming to England, this is what they would find, and then he does it more seriously in his own voice. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's parts of the essay that are very hard uh, not to read in this kind of comedy English sort of BBC announcer voice, which of course is a rhetorical style that Orwell would have been very familiar with. Um, I mean, his his use of British and English in this essay is pretty much interchangeable. Um, and he writes about the power worship, which is the new religion of Europe and which has infected the English intelligentsia, who he characterises as being predominantly left-wing. In fact, almost entirely left-wing. He says this has infected the English intelligentsia, but it has never touched the common people. And he talks about the gentleness of the English civilization, uh, despite its, despite his own links to, to empire. And I think the constitution of both Englishness in relation to the rest of Great Britain, but also in relation to the empire in this this essay is very interesting. He rather wonderfully he does acknowledge at one point that he's 
been talking about England and he quickly sort of remembers to kind of talk about the Welsh and the Scots and acknowledges that they have differences. But then he sort of quickly pulls it all together by saying, you know, the minute they would confront a, a European, they would suddenly sort of all feel British together. And then he can go back to talking about the English. I think that's the only point when he addresses that slippage. Yeah, I mean, he speaks of England being economically two nations, if not three or four. And he is um, he is very conscious that inequality is a huge social problem in in the United Kingdom and particularly in England, having written The Road to Wigan Pier. Um, he basically suggests that a lot of the hypocrisy over the empire is because, as he puts it, in the working class, this hypocrisy takes the form of not knowing that the empire exists and talks about how much the English sort of hate the kind of swaggering officer type. Um, he talks about the First World War in particular um, being in the national mythology for the disaster for the battles that turned out to be disastrous, Gallipoli and Passchendaele amongst them, and talks about how the most stirring battle poem in English is about a brigade of cavalry that charged in the wrong direction. Obviously, he's talking about Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade. Um, what I, you know, he he talks about the insularity of the English, their refusal to take foreigners seriously, and he calls this a folly that has to be paid for very heavily from time to time, and. I don't think I really need to spell out the contemporary relevance of, of that quote. Um, and he says it pays its part in the English mystique and the intellectuals who've tried to break it down have done more harm than good. Um, I think a point that you, know, you could really take issue with is the way he says that the English working class have never thought internationally, with the exception of the hands-off Russia campaign in the 1920s. And um, in terms of talking about a working class socialist movement, how, how fair is that? Well, I think what Orwell always does when he's talking about the working class is ignore the actual working class people that were that, that spoke to him in, in long sentences. You know, that there's, um, this turns up in Raymond Williams's book about Orwell, that while he's traveling for the road to Wigan Pier, you know, his kind of book about uh, the Great Depression in, in the North, he never mentions the people that he's staying with throughout who were Labour Party activists, communist activists, and trade unionists. And at one point, he literally describes these people as, as deracinated, that these are not the authentic working class people. So like the kind of hundreds of people and uh, you know who went from South Wales to fight in these national brigades, for instance, these people aren't really important. And I think he's right that they're a minority, but he thinks that because of that, they're completely unrepresentative and not working class, essentially. That, that somehow them being able to sort of read a book has sort of meant that they're no longer the kind of authentic proles that appear in 1984, you know, kind of singing songs and hanging out the washing and, you know, gambling and so on. And that's proven very influential in recent years. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a great quote in uh, Rainer Heppenstall's book, Four Absentees. Um, Rainer Heppenstall was uh, a writer from Huddersfield who um, was born in 1911 and wrote through the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s uh, shared a shared a house with George Orwell in the 1930s. We'll come back to that. Uh, but in Four Absentees, um, his his memoir of knowing Orwell and other figures, including Dylan Thomas and Eric Gill, Heppenstall uh, talks about Orwell saying Orwell was already contemplating a guide to working class life, which of course was down and out in Paris and London, and then uh, and then the road to Wigan Pier. Um, Heppenstall says, with my information on this subject, Orwell was dissatisfied. He wanted leaky ceilings and ten in a room with scrabbling on slack heaps if possible. Orwell himself hankered after the simple life. He compared the process of writing unfavourably with that of making something real like a chair on which you could then sit down. 
I thought him a wonderfully nice man, but confused. So we'll come back to Rainer Heppenstall later in the programme, but that gives you some idea of how Orwell uh, kind of calibrated working class life and the kind of working class life that he wanted to portray. And of course, through the road to Wigan Pier, that's, um, that's something that's come back down to a lot of, um, a lot of Orwell's kind of fans and followers. Um, he spends a lot of time attacking uh, not just um, certain types of socialists in this essay, although he does a lot more of that in Wigan Pier. Uh, he spends a lot of time attacking the English intelligentsia for not being sufficiently patriotic, for being ashamed of their own country. He characterises the intelligentsia as being entirely left-wing, uh, which I just think, you know, if you were following modernist literature in the United Kingdom at this point is just categorically untrue. Nearly all of the um, most important modernist figures in in the United Kingdom at the time, particularly England, were either kind of studiously detached from politics until quite near the beginning of the war, um, or were people like Wyndham Lewis or T.S. Eliot. He, I suppose he means a quite specific group, which is sort of the people that he called the pansy poets and the pansy left, W.H. Auden, Christopher Isherwood and so on. And, you know, this uh, that's not atypical homophobia from Orwell. Kind of tends to be quite lurid even for the time. No, Heppenstall talks about Orwell being very much against homosexuals. The only time that they talked about it, Heppenstall was, was actually much more liberal on this, this subject than Orwell. Yeah. I think also just to pick up on Owen's point, um, mentioning Auden and Isherwood and the people who've gone to America, at this point I think he's really sort of only on the side of people who can you know, fight this war in whatever way. I mean, the line in the Unicorn's quite a militaristic essay in, in many ways. Um, but also what Owen said earlier about, you know, finding you know the working class not being quite authentic enough so you can only mention some and you can't mention others um he has the same with intellectuals you know he's not mentioning the sort of you know intellectuals he knows who aren't left-wing as as you sort of pointed out you know people like the literary editor his school friend Cyril Connolly by this point you know there's a point in the war where he has lunch every week with the novelist Anthony Pohl and Malcolm Muggeridge the journalist but also I think George Orwell's done more than anything to kind of seal that unpatriotic image of a left-wing intellectual without saying who it is. And he has this wonderful image that's really gripping that, you know, almost any inter in English intellectual would feel more ashamed of standing to attention during God Save the King than of stealing from a poor box. Now, that's the standard, like, you know, are you going to sing along to the national anthem for any Labour politician, really? But... It's a wonderful example of Orwell's sleight of hand because he's talking about somebody actually doing something, which is the negative, not standing up, and he's comparing it to something they would never do, which is stealing from the poor box. So, for instance, if you just want to be more concrete, if you say that you know perhaps Jeremy Corbyn has not sung the national anthem on one occasion, there's no suggestion that he's actually stealing from the poor box. One is real and the other is just a straw man. And that's something that Orwell's just brilliant at. Yeah, I mean, on, on Jeremy Corbyn and Orwell's influence on the left, um, in the second half of The Road to Wigan Pier, uh, Orwell criticises lots of different types of socialists and leftists. And in particular, he hated the vegetarian, teetotal, creeping Jesus kind of socialist who practice yoga. And I mean, that's not a precise description of Jeremy Corbyn, but he is vegetarian and I, teetotal. I didn't know that he did yoga, but I think that, <laughs> but there's, there's also something else about 
Corbyn, which is kind of much more germane to, to Orwell, which is, you know, a sort of quite extreme Englishness, which he gets from Benism and that particular tradition of sort of the Labour left in the 1970s, which very much grows out of Tribune, which, of course, Orwell, you know, is the literary editor for several years and is very influential on. And that kind of, you know, harping on the Chartists and the Levellers and so forth, and that kind of our important tradition, the Durham Miners Gala type socialism, which is also part of what Corbyn is, is, is very kind of you know, these people have all read a lot of Orwell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Orwell is um, is actually very interesting um, on the the English press and public life. Um, I think he he has a very idealistic view of. I mean, as we said earlier, he uses British and English interchangeably, but um, the kind of Westminster parliamentary system and the London-based press. He talks about the English press how they could not be openly bribed and he says that public life in England has never been openly scandalous um, I don't really think that was true in the early 40s and it's definitely not true now um, but I think there is there is a faith in the English people a certain type of English working class person that as we've sort of said is to some extent a straw man um, that to me feels quite naive really but it also comes out of his sort of oddness you know and, and the fact of him being quite out of place that his whole thing about going going to about discovering Englishness is coming from somewhere else and that's referring I think partly to him being born in India but also comes from um, you know him sort of living in France for several years and fighting in Spain he mentions at one point that he's learned seven foreign languages including two dead ones um, this is not a particularly, even sort of, you know, middle class English left. That's pretty unusual. He's got this enormous interest in sort of European intellectuals in the 1940s in particular. And I think that there's sort of, it's coming from somewhere else and then noticing the things that make it different. So it's quite an atypical experience of kind of going from France and going, ah, here they eat suet pudding and the weather's grey and so forth. And it's, 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 it's never about sort of seeing this thing from within, but seeing it then from without. I think I would add that I don't think there's any context in which Orwell is at home in every context, right from when he's at his sadistic prep school, you know, r until until the end. He's always he's always kind of enjoying a contrarian position or, or even manoeuvring to find it when he can. Can we talk a little bit in this essay about Orwell um, and how he discusses the empire and particularly India? Uh, I think he makes the useful and important point that the Labour Party at this time and the sort of trade unionism and welfare state policies that are really starting to come to the fore, um, you know, when uh, people who would form part of the Labour cabinet in 1945 are starting to come into the war cabinet. Um, you know, he, he does make it very clear that um, a lot of these policies do rely on money that's being extracted from the empire. Um, even while he argues that independence for India and the African colonies is basically impossible. He says that, as things are at present, India not only cannot defend itself, it is hardly even capable of feeding itself. Of course, the um, the full horror of the Bengal famine was, was not revealed for a, a few years after. At this um, point, Orwell is literally doing propaganda for the Indian service as well. And but also he's he's one year away from the greatest, you know, the idea that the British are defending India in 1942 after the fall after the fall of Singapore, they get kicked out of Burma. They have to go and hide in Be in Bengal until they can go back. I mean, it's it's catastrophic. Um, yeah, I Owen's mean, right, the, it's propaganda. 
the Bengali population, you know, at this time was was in huge debt due to debt bondage and loss of land holdings due to land grabbing, uh, wartime inflation and land appropriation, British denial policies for rice and boats in response to the Japanese invasion of Burma, supplies being prioritised for military and civil servants, emergency trade barriers and Churchill restricting access to international sources of, of, of food. Um, and yet Orwell sort of says that India would suffer foreign conquest and famines if it were liberated from the British. Um, he did actually live long enough uh, to see the um, British um, independence being given to to India, although I don't know how much that features in, in the work in the last kind of year or so of his life. I think fairly little, but I think that, that one of the things that distinguishes Orwell from a lot of Orwell's disciples is the importance of imperialism to to him and i think um i mean he's frequently casually racist but he's insistent on imperialism being evil um obviously you know partly phrases from his own experience as an imperial policeman in burma and there's the point that he makes you know frequently in the 1940s you know that socialist propaganda in britain has kind of made a fib and that it's not pointed out that the proletariat lives in the empire um and that you know, that one the thing, the story he was supposed to be working on when he died was apparently going to be a sort of Conrad-style imperial story, and this could have been absolutely terrible, but we'll never know. Yeah, I mean, Orwell dies dies in his mid forties in January nineteen fifty of what Rainer Heppenstall called deliberately neglected tuberculosis. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, whether that's true or fair or not, I I don't know. But um, you know, Orwell's politics on independence, on immigration, on homosexuality uh, were never really tested. Other well, writers of his generation would have. That's not entirely true on immigration. Actually, I don't want to be. A pedant on it, but there's a lot about Polish immigration in in the As I Please things for Tribune, um, where he's completely fervently for it, and you know there's quite a lot about sort of British hostility to to foreigners and immigration, where he's actually very kind of um, critical of and considers it sort of deeply ignorant and economically ignorant and so forth, and um, which is again sort of not part of the sort of blue labour construction of of Orwell at all, that actually Orwell is consistently pro-immigration throughout. We should just explain who Blue Labour are for, oh, for our listeners. <laughs> um, is it Stephen still a thing? Um, I guess the sort of progressive patriotism, to use Billy Bragg's phrase, the kind of like, in order to win elections, we need to be more British type thing that a lot of people were doing in the sort of Ed Miliband years. I mean, just, but the bathos of Blue Labour is, whereas Orwell's argument is that we need pa English patriotism to win the war, it's kind of, you know, we need English patriotism to win Basildon. <laughs> <laughs> First is tragedy. <laughs> well, that seems like a good place to uh, to sum up on the um, the lion and the unicorn. I mean, just one other thing that I I think all of us have taken exception to is his assertion that the English socialist movement has never produced a catchy tune. Uh, without wanting to sound too kind of authentic, I um I go to a lot of football matches, and you will hear a version of the red flag being sung at some point at pretty much every stadium in the country. Did they take it from Otanenbaum, or did Otanenbaum take it from the Red Flag, though? Is it their tune? That's a good point, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to add one thing to that, because one of the things I'm sort of really interested in is sometimes when Orwell says his plainest, you know, most interesting, kind of catchy headline sentence, and then you think, is that true? Um, but he says, you know, yeah, it's never produced anything to 
rival the Marseillaise or La Cucaracha. But it's clearly on his mind because then in Animal Farm, when when he comes up, you know, with the post with the revolutionary anthem, um, and it's and he says, and I think it says in the book that it's to the tune it's a tune halfway between la cucaracha and my darling clementine so you know for five years this has been on his mind and yeah i mean there are um interesting parts of 1984 where he contrasts the sort of organic kind of almost like folk songs that just the proles sing for themselves with the kind of deadened um propaganda of the the ruling the ruling regime um i want to move the conversation on now um you're listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm with Fatima Ahmed and Owen Hathley talking about the life, work and legacy of George Orwell. Um, so speaking of that legacy, I want to spend some time now talking about two of Orwell's best-known essays, uh, Why I Write and Politics in the English Language. Um <coughs> Why I Write is an interesting kind of act of, of self-creation. And Fatima, I wonder if you wanted to to elaborate on on Orwell's kind of construction of his own identity through through some of these essays. Well, I think one of the most appealing aspects of Orwell, and I do want to stress that he's, you know, he meant a lot to me as a teenager. I still, you know, get a lot from reading it, but I think you have to think through it. Um, Why I Write is... A fantastic essay in some ways because he basically shows you the workings he explains his motivations he's very clear that first and foremost you know from the age of five or six I think he says you know he wanted to be a writer and at first he wanted to kind of be a writer of enormous he talks about you know bad teenage poetry and then he talks about and quotes some of it I think um, and then he um talks about you know wanting to write enormous naturalistic novels and then he sort of talks about his move into kind of you know political writing um but he's very good on the motivations so you know he says some of them are egoism aesthetic enthusiasm you know sometimes it's you know to make a political point um he's not very good i think at psychology but actually he's quite good at giving you a lot of information about himself in quite an unemotional way I mean, yeah, I find that really, really appealing. I'm I'm really interested in any kind of creative artist who reflects on their own practice, their own prejudices, their own aesthetic decisions and political decisions. Um, Orwell, you know, he lists four reasons why he writes in this essay and there are sheer egoism. And he says that serious writers, I should say, are on the whole more vain and self-centred than journalists, although less interested in money. He talks about aesthetic enthusiasm, historical impulse of finding out facts and recording them for posterity and political purpose he says that no book is free of political bias and that the opinion that art should have nothing to do with politics is itself a political attitude which you know is a mantra that um you know i take very seriously uh, in my work and for this program um and i think on the left generally that's um you know that's an important point for for anyone making creative work from a from a left position I mean, in terms of politics in the English language, I think that essay is a lot more, um, a lot more dubious. There's lots of this kind of like no long words comrade stuff that I think has had a really bad influence. But there's one, the, the, the part of it, I think there's anything worth salvaging from that essay, because I think a lot of it is bollocks, is, um, this is actually from an As I Please essay, um, but it's sort of similar points. Um, 
And he just lists sort of like particular worn out metaphors that he sort of wants, wants sort of finished off. And he sort of he lists cross swords with, ring the changes on, and take up the cudgels for. We still see all of these, you know, decades and decades and decades later. How lifeless these and similar expressions have become, you can see from the fact that in many cases people do not even remember their original meaning. What's meant by ringing the changes, for instance? Perhaps it wants something to do with church bells, but one couldn't be sure about consulting a dictionary. And he goes on, and you can pick up any newspaper now, and you'll find this sort of rubbish still being used. And it's no respecter of political position. Everyone does it. Um, and I think the sooner that is completely obliterated, the better. On the other hand, I don't think we should eliminate foreign words from the English language because we're not speaking Anglo-Saxon. No. Um, there's a... Yeah. But he has some very weird prejudices, which I think are partly due to his classical education. And he writes about this repeatedly and sort of, you know, clearly didn't didn't like it. And at one point he sort of says, you know, more, another generalisation, it's an, it's an as I please column. He says that more adult men have read various works by Latin and Greek authors than the entire extant corpus of 18th century English writing. Well, does it really matter? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I picked out... Um, a quite entertaining essay by Stephen Paul for The Guardian on politics and the English language from um, from 2013. Funny enough, that day is going to keep recurring in our discussion of Orwell. But um, Stephen Paul summarises it by saying politics and the English language in that much of it is the kind of nonsense screed against linguistic pet hate that anyone today might compose in a green text email to the newspapers, <laughs> uh, which is rather harsh. Um, but... Paul is very good on um, on the way Orwell talks about political speech and writing being largely the defence of the indefensible um, and saying that political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question begging and sheer cloudy vagueness and then concludes that political, writing, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. Now I don't really disagree with with most of that but Stephen Paul says that what is worrying is that Orwell's diagnosis of cloudy vagueness and pure wind might seem to sanction an impatient dismissal should we just assume everything politicians say is hot air to do so would be to let our guards down um I mean does that does that you know Stephen Paul goes on to say political rhetoric now as in Orwell's day exploits not only euphemism such as austerity but dysphemism such as skivers and loaded metaphors such as fiscal cliff. In our time, weaponized sound bites are deliberately engineered to smuggle the greatest amount of persuasion into the smallest space to be virally replicated on rolling news. Um, does that seem like a kind of a fair response to, to Orwell? I'm, I'm not sure how convinced I am by it myself. I think there's some truth in it. I suppose where I sort of think of the malign influence of that essay is much more... Um, it's kind of application with respect to kind of any kind of academic or experimental writing. You know, it's it's the kind of, um, you know, sort of public school educated um, journalist that pretends not to know what neoliberalism is. You know, it's the person that's had the most expensive education in the world who claims not to be able to understand a single sentence in Adorno. You know, this is really, really dominant in English life and it's, it, it's a, a dreadful influence. And I'd say the converse is, I think, something that Orwell says in Why I Write about good prose is like a window pane. And then again, I think in Politics and the English Language, he says the great enemy of clear language is insincerity. And I think the converse of what Owen said is that there's this tendency to trust, to think that a clear statement is necessarily honest. Um, 
I also really disagree with the idea, you know, sentences, you don't look through them, you travel through them, you think your way through them. They aren't just things that you look at and go, ah, here's the meaning. Um, but also, you know, you could read, um, I suppose that, that section, that period when, you know, Ed Miliband's speeches, when he was leader, they were incredibly clear. They had no meaning whatsoever. You know, um, there's a lot of political rhetoric that is incredibly clear. It's not complicated. Um, it yeah. says nothing. I mean, I really remember round about the sort of 2013-2014 period where, where Orwell did seem to have a particularly strong influence over quite a lot of British political life. Um, Ed Miliband talking about like one nation labour. Um, and you could, you could really feel the influence of Orwell and particularly the lion and the unicorn in that sort of thinking, that sort of rhetoric. But what did it mean? Not, not very much, really, I don't think. It's certainly not, not something that's endured. I think also kind of citing Orwell is also a way of kind of proving your good faith, that you're approachable, that you're understandable. Um, one of the things Orwell says about, you know, distrusting writing, which feels as if it's just phrases put together. I also feel that he's co-opted himself into political writing, which just has a bit of insert Orwell here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the politics in the English language... Uh, famously the the final rule um after he's told you never to use a long word where a short one will do and never to use the passive where you can use the active and to avoid phrases of, of foreign origin um he concludes by saying break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous and stephen paul says but the eager student might ask how is one to tell whether what one has said is barbarous or not or well is silent on the matter presumably it ends up being a question of taste um, I want to move the conversation on again now to to a more considered uh, discussion of Orwell's legacy. Um, so here I want to talk particularly about Orwell's two most famous novels, Animal Farm and 1984, um, but also the stranglehold that these, these two novels in particular have had over a certain type of left and liberal um, imagination. Um, Orwell really started to become a secular saint very soon after his his death. Um, I mentioned earlier Rainer Heppenstall's book Four Absentees, published in um, in 1960, and uh, as I said, this um, this is a very entertaining book. It's very very funny in lots of places. There's um, there's a particularly enjoyable anecdote where uh, Heppenstall gets kicked out of a bar after reacting quite angrily to somebody putting their hand on his shoulder and saying, Rainer, I think you've had enough. And that somebody is Dylan Thomas. Um, and if Dylan Thomas is telling you to stop drinking, then you probably have gone too far. Um, so there's an anecdote in the book uh, about how Heppenstall and an Irish writer called Michael Sayers, um, who was, was also quite a modernist writer, uh, were both eight years younger than George Orwell and sharing this this house with him. Uh, Happenstall gets back late from a Labour Party organising meeting and drunkenly wakes up Orwell, to whom he owes rent arrears. And uh, they have an argument um, where Orwell is telling Happenstall that Happenstall is going to wake up the whole street. And um, Rainer Happenstall diplomatically responds by saying, Eric, do shut up and go away. And um, this kind of escalates and Orwell uh, comes back with, uh, with a shooting stick. This story is, is quite famous. Happenstall says, Then there was rapid movement. The key turned in the lock. The door opened. The light came on. There stood Orwell, armed with his shooting stick. With this, he pushed me back, poking the aluminium point into my stomach. 
I pushed it aside and sprang at him. He fetched me a dreadful crack across the legs and then raised the shooting stick over his head. I looked at his face. Through my private mist, I saw in it a curious blend of fear and sadistic exultation. I moved sideways, <laughs> caught up Michael's chair. I had it raised sufficiently to receive on it the first crash of the descending metal-fitted stick. Then there were two other figures in the room, and Orwell had gone. The tram driver on the floor below and the plumber on the floor below that took me downstairs. The tram driver's wife was making tea. They put me in a chair and started fussing over me. We never did think much of that, Mr Blair, said the tram driver's wife. Keeps us awake till three or four in the morning with his typing he does sometimes. I do type myself, I said, animated by a passion for justice. Yes, but not over where we sleep. So... If you want a vision of the future, imagine being hit on the ankles of a shooting stick forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that um, that story um, from Heppenstall went down incredibly badly. Heppenstall was really uh, kind of castigated for, for telling this story about Orwell, even though, you know, he describes in Four Absentees them kind of making up, and Heppenstall remained one of um, Orwell's closest friends right up until the very end. Lots of the letters from George Orwell that you will find in volumes of Orwell's letters are letters to Heppenstall. Um, but if I want to sort of, to sort of bring it back, I suppose, to Animal Farm in 1984, there's an essay by another kind of friend of all worlds who I don't think was as close a friend, which was Isaac Deutscher, um, on 1984, and he makes quite an interesting distinction between 1984 and Animal Farm. Um, but he sort of mentions sort of sitting around in the office with, with Orwell at the Observer and Orwell being completely convinced that there were sort of conspiracies going on everywhere and that they were sort of carving up the world and, you know, um, Isaac Deutscher, she sort of tries to sort of says at one point that Orwell literally thinks, didn't, didn't see the Cold War about to happen in his view, that, 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 that there was going to be these three powers who were just going to agree to, you know, kind of dominate the world together. Um, but... Um, in that sense, I think he sort of sounds quite a lot like the sort of people around nowadays that, you know, sort of think that Russia done Brexit and so forth. But there's a really interesting distinction in, in Deutsch's essay between, between those two famous books. Animal Farm, he's completely uncritical of. And it's like Animal Farm is a good book. It's a good parable, parable, parable on the Soviet Union and, you know, it's, has very little kind of critical say about it. Whereas 1984, he's just kind of like, this could never not have been a weapon in the Cold War. You know, it's it's the, the level of horror in it is so kind of overwhelming that, um, I mean, he ends the essay by saying that someone once tried to sell him a copy of 1984 in the streets of New York by saying, like, this book shows why we need to drop the atom bomb on the Bolshies. And for him, you know, that's inherent in the book itself. There's, you know, that's Orwell's fault. I'd also say it's inherent in the form. Once you're writing allegory with animals, you know, there's, there's a lot more room for manoeuvre. Um, once you're writing dystopia with characters and a plot that, you know, with human feelings, then you've got that always that sort of weaponising instrumental use. Yeah, I mean, I want to just uh, bring in something here, just partly for entertainment's sake, uh, which is um, Robert Conquest, who was a figure that Orwell actually worked with um, worked with at the Information Research Department, which was set up by the Labour government in 1948 um, as a sort of propaganda um, unit during the Cold War. Um, so Robert Conquest uh, was writer and historian, um, and he wrote a poem about George Orwell in 1969, which I'm now going to uh, to read on air as one of Sweet 212's regular uh, poetry series. So Conquest writes, Moral and mental glaciers melting slightly, 
betray the influence of his warm intent, because he taught us what the actual meant. The vicious winter grips its prey less tightly. Not all were grateful for his help, one finds. For how they hated him, who huddled with the comfort of a quick remedial myth against the cold world and their colder minds. We die of words. For touchstones he restored, the real person, real event or thing. And thus we see no war but suffering as the conjunction to be the most abhorred. He shared with a great world for greater ends that honesty, that curious, cunning virtue <laughs> you share with just the few who don't desert you. A dozen writers, half a dozen friends, a moral genius, and truth-seeking brings sometimes a silliness we view askance, like Darwin playing his bassoon to plants. He too had lapses, but he claimed no wings, while those who drown a truth's empiric part in dithyram or dogma turn frenetic, that whom no writer could be less poetic. He left this lesson for all verse, all art. Now, we're pre-recording the show today, and I've had to do about six takes of that poem because none of us could get through the end without bursting into laughter. Um, it's it's a really... I think it's possibly the most embarrassing artefact related to, to Orwell. I don't know if either of you... Robert Webb might give it the edge. I'm really glad you mentioned Robert Webb um, because I want to, to talk about Orwell's appeal to um, a sort of group of people who at points have called themselves centrists, but have, I think, largely disowned that label now. Um, what we're kind of talking about here, we mentioned Blue Labour earlier in the show. Um, centrism, I think, is is a form of liberalism that kind of emerged in the 90s, uh, particularly in the US and the UK. Um, I think it's intrinsic to two-party political systems. Um, the idea behind centrism is basically a a more gutless form of liberalism, I think, if I was going to be particularly um, harsh on it. The idea is that it responds to the kind of whims of the electorate, placing itself within a kind of Overton window of the sort of left and right wing limits of acceptable political <coughs> discourse. Um, if I were to be a bit kinder to it, I'd say it was a kind of way of pursuing social democratic ends by neoliberal means. Um, I think a, a most brutal summary of it might be the famous Peter Mandelson quote where he says that he's intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. In practice, a lot of the people who subscribe to this uh, ideology, um, a lot of them are former socialists, in particular former Trotskyists, um, who've moved away from the left and have ended up kind of intensely hating the left and defining themselves against it. And I think Orwell particularly appeals to that kind of mentality um i'm not going to kind of like name lots of individual names um you have to open the observer really and, yes yeah. i mean there's a staggeringly funny parody of a lot of these types of journalists on twitter who uses the handle orwell fan um and it's quite telling that when you want to parody these people orwell fan is the the name that you reach for i mean i don't want to piece it a two sort of chapter and verse on this because obviously you know orwell changed his mind a lot on things but i think that the you know the the, the differences between that and orwell's actual views on things in the 1940s is very it's very telling and very interesting um and i think that really uh, rather than sort of coming from two-party systems i think it that actually a lot of this stuff comes from people that are 
sort of supporters of reform of one sort or another at home, but are very much in favour of bombing the rest of the world as they see fit. Um, and on that, you know, conquest, you know, literally says at one point, you know, after after 1989, yes, I was proud of being a cold warrior. I was on the right side. We won. Everything is completely fine. Um, you know, presumably the Vietnam War was totally fine. You know, um, Pinochet, etc. And there's a bit, and in, in, again, in an As I Please column where um, Orwell, you know, sort of, he's, he describes going to a, a a conference of a thing called the League for European Freedom, which is um, basically describes it as being various Tories who have sort of gone to, you know, do give talks about the ghastly things that were then happening to Poland and the Baltic countries. So the Baltics were annexed by the Soviet Union and Poland had an unpopular government imposed upon it by the Soviet Union. And he says, and, and he notes how, and they suddenly start talking about Greece. And he says, and then suddenly black became white and white black. There was no booing, no interjections to the quite low, large audience. No one there apparently who could see that the forcing of quizzling governments upon unwilling peoples is equally undesirable, whoever does it. And this is, and of course the Cold War is, you know, both sides forcing quizzling governments on unpopular, you know, on on countries, whether it's in Korea or Vietnam or Greece or whether it's in Poland or the Baltic. You know, this is a thing that that both sides do incessantly. And and this is kind of quite hard to sort of square with Orwell later giving his list to MI6. But certainly this is from 1945. He's kind of, you know, refusing to take part in the Cold War, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's quite telling as well that in that list, you mentioned like Vietnam, Korea, Poland, and I think lots of our listeners will be familiar with the, you know, the broad political trajectory of those countries during the Cold War, whereas Greece, they might not be. Um, And that's quite revealing in itself. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, Orwell writing for Tribune is writing for um, a paper which was enormously critical of Britain's sort of imposition of a kind of Nazi collaborationist government upon um, what would otherwise have been a country led by the mainly communist resistance. Um, and so for Tribune, he's sort of saying, well, you know, what's happening in the Baltic and in Poland is as bad as Greece. And now we've forgotten what is happening in Greece. Yeah. Um, I just want to, before we move the conversation back to MI5 that we've just mentioned, um, I do want to just pick up on uh, Robert Webb in 2013 responding to Russell Brand's call for people not to vote in favour of total revolution. Uh, Webb wrote for the New Statesman, which incidentally was a publication Orwell was intensely critical of. Um, wrote, I understand your ache for the luminous, for a connection beyond yourself. Russell, we all feel like that. Some find it in musical literature, some in the wonders of science and others in religion, but it isn't available anymore in revolution. We tried that again and again, and we know that it ends in death camps, gulags, repression and murder. In brief, and I say this with the greatest respect, please read some effing Orwell. Um, and I mean, that that phrase has become a, a kind of in-jokes amongst certain types of... Um, of, of kind of people on the, the online left. People um, who read nothing but effing Orwell. Well, yes. <laughs> but also, I think, I would say, and it's not, obviously this this can't be put at George Orwell's door, but the people who say that, who would suggest that or who are being parodied by Orwell fan are reading a very tiny sliver and as you said don't follow how his his position changes even what he says about specific things or you know they certainly don't mean you know read the clergyman's daughter there, there's a lot of awful <laughs> Orwell that. That, there's, yes I, I would agree with that but there are many or there's there's a lot you know we should treat him as a writer because you know he says his greatest aim is to turn political writing into an art we i think you have to treat him as a writer first 
Yeah, and I mean, there is, you know, there is an impressive honesty in his writing, I think, and, you know, comparative lack of dogmatism that comes out of that position or like at least a willingness to kind of change his mind, interrogate his own position at points. Which is frequently really um, quite strange. I mean, you know, My Country Right or Left, where he goes from, he, he writes this essay at the start of the war, which has a title that we won't be able to say on air, um, where he's basically like, you know, um, ridicules this idea of sort of Winston Churchill as anti-fascist and this very kind of scathing um, attack on the whole endeavour. And then he basically, you know, he, he says in my country right or left, he has a dream. And he has a dream where, you know, Britain is under attack and he wakes up knowing that, you know, the public school drilling put into him at Eton and so forth has done its work and he would support Britain whatever happens. Um, and I think, on, you know, by and large on this, partic- this particular political shift, he was probably right. But it's not based on sort of reason or thinking or anything like that. It's based on, like, him having a dream and, like, and, you know, the politics bullied him into that were bullied into him at Eton, like kind of like enduring no matter what he kind of um, tries to sort of think his way out of. It's not it's not a particularly great example of um, of, of political thinking of, of any kind. Sure, we've got ten minutes left here on Sweet Two One Two. So I just want to close our conversation today about George Orwell by just spending a bit more time on Animal Farm in 1984 in the the Cold War context. It was revealed. Um, I think originally in The Independent in 1996 and covered again in The Guardian in 2002, that in 1949, Orwell had prepared a list of writers who he considered unsuitable for anti-communist propaganda activities of the information research department that I mentioned earlier. Um, He gave this to Celia Kerwan, who was Robert Conquest's assistant at the IRD and sister-in-law of the novelist uh, Arthur Kessler. He was trying to cop off with her, her. this is worth mentioning. Yes, absolutely. I was just about to come to that. Uh, It was one of the four women to whom Orwell proposed after his wife Eileen O'Shaughnessy died in 1945. Um, Orwell named a number of cryptos, fellow travellers and Stalinists, including British Communist Party members and American writers, um, described Paul Robeson as being very anti-white, Stephen Spender as a sentimental sympathiser with a tendency towards homosexuality if anyone's jewish you always make sure to mention it yeah um you know he also mentions um scottish poet hugh mcdermid charlie chaplin kingsley martin the editor of the new statesman isaac deutsch i've already mentioned historian eh carr and michael foot um who was a friend of orwell in the interwar period said he was amazed by this revelation um you know, this was the journalist and activist Norman Ian McKenzie, who was on the list, said that tubercular people often get could get very strange towards the end. I'm an Orwell man. I agree with him on the Soviet Union, but he went partly gaga, I think. He let his dislike of the new statesman crowd, of what he saw as leftish, dilettante, sentimental socialists who covered up for the popular front in Spain after it became communist controlled, get the better of him. Um... So that's some of the kind of things that were going on in the background between Animal Farm and 1984. Um, certainly Animal Farm, Orwell was very hurt by T.S. Eliot rejecting it for Faber in July 1944. Uh, Eliot said it was a very distinguished piece of writing, that the fable was skillfully handled and the narrative keeps one's interest. But we have no conviction that this is the right point of view from which to criticise the political situation, given that at that time, the United Kingdom is still in alliance with the Soviet Union in the Second World War. Um, I mean, Animal Farm, I think, is you know is quite an obvious allegory of the the Russian Revolution. Um, 1984. We've talked about that as a kind of wider dystopia and its uses during the um, 
the Cold War. But I just wondered if in the sort of five or six minutes we've got left, we can just sort of talk a bit about the difference between those two books and the fact that I think, in particular 1984, so many of the phrases from Orwell's kind of newspeak, the whole idea of newspeak, this condensing down of the English language uh, in a sort of Stalinist uh, style, um, how that sort of entered a certain type of popular imagination. Um, I think I would say about Animal Farm, which I remember pathetically as a teenager, fight, you know, being incredibly moved by, you know, the revolution had been betrayed by the pigs. Um, you know, it was it was really tragic. But Animal Farm, it's it's his take on what has happened, um, whereas 1984 is sort of describing a present in a form of a kind of future. Um, but you know, Animal Farm is. I mean, it's actually, I think it's psychologically one of the, one of his best novels. Um, you know, the sort of, you, you feel for people in a way that I, I don't, I know others d- disagree, that I don't particularly for the characters in 1984. I mean, I suppose if there's anything that I would take from 1984 that I think is sort of salvageable is, is the fact that it's just, it's a really good gothic novel about the 1940s. And like a sort of genre novel, characterization is shallow a lot of it is quite absurd you know it's full of sadism it's really lurid it's a nasty book in a lot of ways um you know you can tell he's ill in a lot of it um but also that you know the, the, the 1940s aspect you know it's really fascinating to kind of like read lots of the as i please columns and then compare them with 1984 and there's so much about you know kind of like leaky ceilings and damp and having to do the washing up and there's you know, sort of people never thinking the war is going to end and assuming there's going to be a new war straight after the last war and so on and so forth. And um, and I, I, if sort of read as that, I think it's 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 still quite fun. But if read as political prophecy, I think it's been actively dangerous. I think it's it's helped people whip, whip sort of whip people into line with some really nasty politics. Yeah, I mean, there's the famous line, isn't there? I can't remember who said it, but nothing is as of its time as a vision of the future. And, uh, you know, 1984 is a book that could only have been written in the late 40s, I think. Um, I think that's something that's very important to remember. And that's that's not the case with Animal Farm, I don't think. And we sort of don't, really, of course, we don't know where he would have gone afterwards with that. I mean, whether or not, I mean, if you compare it with sort of Anna Arendt and the origins of totalitarianism, which in many ways is sort of an, sort of an intellectual complement to that book. In her first preface to it, she already sort of says, um, after 1953, the Soviet Union stopped being totalitarian. And so, you know, f- four years after that book is published, for Aaron, you know, it ceases to really describe that society. Um, but for generations of cold warriors, you know, this was not the case. Um, and I think a, a lot of people see what happened in, in, in Eastern Europe after the 1940s entirely through the prism of something written in Islington by, a, you know, written in the island of Jura by a sort of weird tubercular public school guy. I think another really interesting question is, you know, I really wish Orwell had kind of lived long enough to kind of, f- until 1956 or kind of just after 1956, because then that would have split up his Cold War sort of fan base. Um, and it's interesting how me- how so many of his kind of recent develop- um, defenders, and actually I, I think I just mean Christopher Hitchens here, but how much of his book in defence of Orwell, which is written in 2002, he's really, this is his kind of real real kind of final breakup letter to the left, um, is so much of it is kind of predicated on attacking Raymond Williams at length and New Left Review. And it all seems very peculiar until you sort of think, oh, okay, 
you know, the following year, you're going to, you know, really pushing for, you know, being a neoliberal hawk, you know. Um, but I think when Orwell dies is really key to kind of how he's received and how we think about him and and what kind of predictions are kind of valid. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, two minutes left. So I wonder if both of you would like to just kind of sum up anything you think might be of, of use from Orwell to to readers now well, one of the fun lines actually and one of the things that what, what, I'm, what I'm going to choose for the end is actually a review from the observer of Hayek's The Road to Serfdom um, so he goes on Professor Hayek is probably right in saying that in this country the intellectuals are more totalitarian minded than the common people but he does not see or will not admit that a return to free competition means for the great mass of people a tyranny probably worse because more irresponsible than that of the state the problem with competitions is that somebody wins them um, I think I would want to say, yes, we should definitely read some Orwell, but we should read some more Orwell because there's, there's more to be read and we should think about his writing the way that he would have interrogated it if you were writing about it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I completely agree that the diversity of Orwell's writing is often lost, the diversity of his journalism and essays, even the diversity of his novels. You know, there are many Orwell novels that that are just not widely read today um and if you are going to read some effing orwell then like read all of it or um or think a bit harder about what you quote uh that's all we've got time for today um thanks for listening uh, i've been your host juliet jakes joined by owen hathley and fatima ahmed uh we'll be back here on resonance 104.4 fm same time same place next week thanks for listening goodbye <laughs>